Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. We maintain the peace through our strength. Weakness only invites aggression. Trust, but verify. Well, I've said it before, and I'll say it again. America's best days are yet to come. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. This is Reaganism, a podcast dedicated to exploring where the Reagan movement lives today. I'm Roger Zak. I'm your host, director of the Ronald Reagan Institute in Washington, D.C. On this episode of Reaganism, Roger is joined by Maryland Governor Larry Hogan. After an 18-year career as a small business owner, Governor Hogan was first elected in 2014 and re-elected in 2018, at which time he became the second Republican ever to be re-elected in his state's history. He recently completed a term as chairman of the National Governors Association and has been one of the governors with the highest approval rating in the country for multiple years. Roger and Governor Hogan discuss his youth activism in the conservative movement, the future of the Republican Party, his conservative successes in Maryland, and his role in bringing about a bipartisan infrastructure agreement. If you enjoyed the conversation, remember to subscribe to Reaganism wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a five-star review. Thanks for listening. Governor Larry Hogan, welcome to the show. Roger, thank you. It's great to be here. Well, we love having you uh, with Reagan Institute and the Reagan Foundation events. You were uh, kind enough to come visit us in, in D.C. At, when, for a speech. We talked about your, your view of, of President Reagan and Reaganism today. We'll get to that in a little bit, but first for our Listeners, political independence, I think, is where people would think of the Governor Hogan brand. That's not something that's unique to you. It's perhaps a family gene. Your father, uh, Congressman Lawrence J. Hogan Sr., had that independence streak. He voted to pass all three articles of impeachment against then-President Nixon, uh, and we know the only GOP member of the House Judiciary Committee to do so. Give us a sense of how his legacy, and you've written about this in your book and talked about it elsewhere, how does that impact you making decisions today and responding to the political climate? Well, it's amazing how much uh, impact it had on my life and on uh, my interest in public service. But, um, you know, that, it, it's funny. It's the, my, my dad did a lot of things in his life, but that's the kind of moment in history that he's most remembered for. It's the thing I think I was most proud of him for. It was, uh, you know, I learned a heck of a lot about not only being independent, but about integrity and, and public service and about, you know, putting a country ahead of party and your own personal individual concerns. Uh, I mean, he was a tough FBI agent, Georgetown trained lawyer who uh, was a strong Nixon supporter, who was fighting to defend Nixon and make sure that he, he uh, that, that the Democrats weren't being partisan and unfair. That they, right, He wasn't on the fence about Nixon. I mean, he was no, there. The, he was all in for Nixon. I, yeah. you know, I got to meet Nixon and the whole family when I was a kid. My dad was in Congress, I served in Congress with uh, Gerald Ford and Jack Kemp and uh, George Bush, uh, and uh, you know, so it was a terrific time. But he, it, it, you know, it took a lot of courage. He stood up, and uh, he wasn't very popular with some of his uh, friends and colleagues in the Republican Party at the time. But all these years later, I think uh, you know, people say he, uh, he stood up and did uh, the right thing. It was the, the right side of history. Um, so he never regretted it. Never looked back. He, he never regretted it. It was he knew it was going to be the end of his political career, and hmm. he knew that it wasn't going to be popular. Uh, and he was right about that uh, at the time. But uh, he he never regretted because he knew it was the right thing. He, he really believed after seeing all the evidence and weighing it uh, that uh, President Nixon, who he really loved, uh, was uh, was guilty of impeachable offenses. So, governor of a purple state. We'll get to that in a minute. Yeah. 
But I wouldn't call it a purple state. It's the bluest state in America. Well, you make it purple. You make it purple. People may not know that you're movement conservative. Tell us about how many times you voted for Ronald Reagan. Well, let's see. Uh, well, in four different election cycles, I voted for Ronald Reagan, which uh, I wasn't a I wasn't a resident of California, so that's probably more than anybody else from my state. I can tell you. <laughs> uh, you count the primaries, you throw them in there. It's a few more, but uh, yeah, I uh, in 1976, amazingly, Gerald Ford was a great friend of my dad's. He had an interesting role in Ford becoming president, obviously. Mm-hmm. My dad was a chairman of, uh, of Ford's campaign, uh, and I was... Uh, but not you. I rebelled, and I was uh, for Ronald Reagan, and it's 1976, so it was uh, you know, at the convention. You were uh, a youth for Reagan chair. Well, not in 76. Oh, earlier. In, in 80 and 84, I was. Right. I was uh, just, uh, I was still in college in 76, and then uh, in 80, I was a newly minted uh, you know, college graduate with a political science degree who... Uh, who really got very involved in the campaign and was a Reagan delegate. So, and then, you know, I, I just voted for him uh, recently. That's <laughs> right. Well, the, 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 the 2020 vote, that got, got some headlines. You know, staying with your conservative brand uh, for a moment, which I'd love to hear more about, uh, people will describe you as a liberal or moderate Republican, maybe because of the way you sparred at times with, with President Trump, um, or because you're a Republican as you've corrected me, of a blue state. Do you identify as a conservative? Talk to us about your conservatism. Well, I'm a lifelong conservative. Like, you know, that, that goes without saying, I guess. If I was uh, involved as a kid. You know, I was teenage Republicans and college Republicans and uh, youth for Reagan chair, right. uh, picking him over. the. Uh, he was the most conservative guy in the race. Um, but I consider myself a, a, a common sense conservative, but, uh, you know, a traditional Republican. You know, I, I never really, uh, you know, I you know, support uh, all, all of the uh, important, you know, conservative uh, causes and believe very strongly that, that our ideas are the right ones. But I'm in the bluest state in America, and I also am not afraid to stand up, uh, speak out when I uh, disagree. Uh, I, I don't think we all have to toe the line and be 100 uh, percent in lockstep with uh, with the leaders of the party. And so, uh, you know, I uh, President Trump and I had our differences. I certainly supported a lot of his policies. Uh, but I, I, unlike you know many of my friends, uh, you know I, I was willing to speak out when I disagreed, and I think that's what you should be able to. <laughs> that's what that's what America's all about. And that's that's one thing you did, and that was a principal position. You're also doing it at a time where you're governor in Maryland. Yeah. Uh, you did something that other thought was not possible, which was a Republican winning. Yeah. In, in Maryland, and, and winning, of course, is is the focus uh, for Republicans today and for conservatives today. Um, I mentioned the Reagan Institute speech you gave in, in last year in November. I'm going to read you uh, a quote from your speech, and I want you to elaborate on it. You said that, as President Reagan said, we are once again at time for choosing, harking back to yeah. Reagan's most significant political speech of his career, that launched his career. Yep. And you, you said, are we going to be a party that can't win national elections? Are we willing to do the hard work to build the durable coalition that will shape our nation's destiny. All right, so that was eight months ago. Yeah. Great words, right? That was good stuff. Uh, Talk to me about the hard coalition building work happening. I mean, do you see eight months later the Republicans doing the things to build that durable coalition to do something that all conservatives and Republicans want, which is to win? Well, yeah. Well, First of all, thank you for, you know, quoting that. I still believe very strongly in those words. Um, I, I think it's critically important. We can't govern if we don't win elections, right? And you, you mentioned that I was elected in this blue state of Maryland. 
Um, you know, I won in 2014. Nobody believed it was possible for a Republican to win there. It was only the second one in 50 years. But more importantly, in uh, 2018, I was reelected by nearly 15 points in a state that the president lost by 30 points twice. Say that one more time. <laughs> that, that, that might get some eyebrows raised. Yeah. I mean, so it goes back to the previous question as well about they consider, you know, I'm in a, I'm in a blue state and I, I have a 70 percent Democratic uh, majority in both houses of my legislature. In spite of that, I've cut taxes seven years in a row. I've cut regulations. We've had the biggest, greatest economic turnaround in America. So you did it by employing Republican conservative policies. Uh, Republican conservative policies and convincing Democrats to vote for them. In the middle of, uh, in the middle of uh, COVID and the economic recovery, I, I got, I'm the only governor in America, Republican governor, to get a majority Democratic legislature to pass tax cuts. And we did it every year. But this year, we did the largest tax cut in history, $1.45 billion, uh, to kind of help struggling families and small businesses during the pandemic. And you let them keep you, more of their own money in their pockets. Do you think you could do that at, at the federal level? Could it's harder. Congress? Yeah, it's harder. I think part, going, I'm getting away from your, your question, really, right. about uh, how, are we doing the hard work that it takes? I, you know, I was able to convince, look, I, I did as well with the Republican base as Donald Trump did. I won overwhelmingly with Republicans, with conservatives. We got the same kind of numbers. Where we differed, and the reason why I ran 45 points ahead of him, uh, was that I also did not turn off large swaths of voters. And we have a, uh, you know, a, about a 30% black population in Maryland. And I did amazingly well uh, with 70-some percent approval rating among black voters. Did I they, want, I you want, con convert them to votes? We converted about uh, almost half of them to vote. So we did, got about 30%, uh, 32%, I think, in, of the black vote and the Baltimore City vote in, when you normally get into single digits. Wow. But I also won suburban women overwhelmingly. We won Asians and Hispanics. Uh, so it, it is possible. Look, Haley Barber once said that successful- Former governor of Mississippi. Former governor of Mississippi. He was former chairman of the RNC. Sure. I love this quote. He said, uh, successful politics is about uh, addition and multiplication, not subtraction and division. I think we've been doing too much subtracting and dividing. Uh, we've been, you know, preaching to the base, but not convincing those swing voters that uh, we have the best ideas. And that, that's why we lost in a four-year period. We lost the White House. We lost the Senate. We lost the House. We, we lost governor seats. And we lost legislative bodies. I was overwhelmingly reelected during the middle of that. So you found success in Maryland, the ways you described. But let's just kind of drill down on this a little bit, uh, because Trump did yeah. get more votes than either prior Republican, yep. maybe 70, nearly 74 yep. million uh, votes. Um, yep. So he got there, you know, these Trump Democrats, uh, you can point to places uh, where Hispanic vote yep. increased. What do you what do you take from that? What's your, you yeah, know, well, so I, you know, I built the same. There's addition there is my yeah, point. I, yeah, there was some addition, uh, but not enough. And there was there was more subtraction than division. So, um, you know, Where? I, I, I would argue I put the same coalition together before Donald Trump two years earlier in 2014 in the blue state. I did it again in 2018. Uh, he, he did do slightly better among black and Hispanic voters. Not, not, didn't didn't triple or quadruple it the way we were able to. But he he lost uh, a lot of suburban women. He lost a lot of other minorities and he lost the uh, moderate and uh, you know, just slightly left of center, right of center voters. He lost the middle, you know, those folks that actually make the decisions and win the elections. He, he got, it was a huge turnout, uh, obviously. Uh, a lot of people came out to vote, and he, he, a lot of people did vote for the president, but there were enough of them. Obviously, his, his approval rating never got over 50% yeah. in There's the entire time he was there. president, and uh, he didn't win. So, <laughs> so I want to uh, read you a, uh, a quote from Kristen Soltis-Anderson, uh, uh, pollster, yeah. you know, Republican pollster, and uh, 
political commentator, she says that the strongest, as a quote, hunger Republican voters have today is an appetite for a fight, which obviously yeah. that's something I think everybody agreed Donald Trump brought to the table. Yep. Uh, you know, there was an article recently, a cover story in the Washingtonian uh, about you and, and your success, and to talk about the Hogan way. You've talked about pragmatic civil politics. Are you a fighter? Well, I'm a tough fighter. Look, I'll stand up and fight for the things that I really believe in. I'll fight for the things that are important, for the values we care about. But I'm not just going to pick fights to pick fights. Look, I think sometimes we care more about winning arguments than actually achieving solutions to the serious problems. By necessity in my state, I can't just pick fights on every single issue and just call names to all of the Democrats or I would never get anything done. I wouldn't have had the huge success that we've had in our state. Uh, unless I was willing, like Reagan was, uh, he stood up for the things he believed in. He was a he was a tough fighter. You know, he stood up for a lot of things uh, and won a lot of battles. But he also was willing to reach across the aisle in a bipartisan way. He didn't think compromise was a dirty word. You know, his one quote was, you know, your 80 percent friend is not your 20 percent enemy. You know, he always tried to find that middle ground. He got things done with Tip O'Neill. You know, the whole time he was president, he had at least one one body of you know, Congress was uh, was Democratic control. But he had an amazing success. I think sometimes uh, Republicans have been guilty of this and certainly so have Democrats. The, the left is there's a whole lot of name calling and arguing and fighting. You know, uh, a lot of it's just yelling at each other on Twitter or calling each other names, but we're not making any progress. So, so you know, there's a reason for some of this. There's yep. a reason why the fighting works. It not only does it get you on TV and you could <clears throat> yeah, you know, make make it a platform, although you've done a pretty good job getting on TV yep. without going negative ex exclusively, um, but also is how you win a primary many places yeah, well, across the country. And so, yep. so let me ask you this. I, I, I'm going to play the part of, of Governor Larry Hogan, and uh, you're going to play the part of, of the consultant here, okay? And, I, and, and here, 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 here's the way it works. I'm, I'm Governor Hogan. I'm going to say, hey. You, you would know, be a much smarter Governor Hogan. Is that right? No, well, you're the better looking <laughs> Governor Hogan. So, I've got um, more hair. <laughs> so Governor Hogan, you know, I'm playing your part. A lot of people are talking about running for president, all right? Smart consultant. What's my path to winning the GOP primary? I can figure out how to win a general because look at Maryland, right? Yeah. But what's my pass? So I'm governor. No, you're the consultant. Yeah. What's the response? Well, you know, I, I, you know, well, governor, first of all, I'm not sure you should run. Uh, <laughs> uh, Isn't that a great way for the consultant to get fired? Uh, yeah, I mean, but, uh, but I could really use the, the, uh, the job as your consultant. So let me just play a devil's advocate and, and spin it for you. Uh, yeah, you, look, I think I do. I have found the secret sauce for winning a general election, right? And if I, I would say, uh, you know, 70% of the people in America really, they want, uh, you know, straightforward, uh, common sense, uh, pragmatic leadership. They want results. They, they don't like the fighting back and forth. However, that's not the base of, of either party. You know, the, the, the far left is dragging the Democrats off in one direction. The base of our party, which I've had the strong support of, but some of them are, are focusing on issues that are not going to win us a general election. But, you know, that's where we are as a party. I, I think the President uh, Trump has dropped in popularity since the election, maybe nearly 30 points. Um, Self-identifying as Republicans is at its lowest point ever. I think 38 to 39 percent. We're ne never going to win. But you're right, the base. I think 60 some percent still favorable towards Donald Trump. There are at least 10, 12 other candidates who really want to take on the mantle of Trump. I would argue they uh, want the Mar-a-Lago endorsement. They went, huh? to, they went went to Mar-a-Lago. I would argue that uh, the, the most Trumpy Republican is not going to win a general election. 
Uh, I, I would also argue that in a primary, there's a about you know somewhere around forty percent of the people that there's a whole other lane that there's no one in, mm-hmm. uh, and so you know I. I you know, uh, four, four years or three and a half years now it, it, it left uh, it is uh, in a lifetime in politics. Right. Um, things can change dramatically. The way they look now might not be what they look like next year. Um, yeah, but I, I, you know, I'm I'm not that concerned about my future in a Republican Party. I just want to make sure there's a future for the Republican Party, and I think that we've got to get back to winning. And I, I think we have a uh, we ha- we can't do that without appealing to more people. So, but you're right. I mean, the primary people say, "Well, that's yeah, be, he'd be a great uh, general election candidate." But how in the heck could you win a primary? Well, you're, you're, I know you could win New Hampshire. Uh, <laughs> you know that's for sure. Well, uh, <laughs> as a consultant now, you're you're hired. That was a great answer. Um, but but you know, one of the pieces that I I, I sense is, is difficult. You know, you you get on, imagine that debate stage. You know, the Reagan Library will yeah. have that primary debate, and you know, 14, 17, 18 candidates yeah. will be up there. You and I have spoken about you know the great debate society that is our United States Senate. No doubt there'll be those yeah, senators that have refined their debates. You're a governor. What do governors need to do to gain national attention? I mean, so many good good accomplishments you've just articulated that yeah. are not known. What, is that is a disadvantage going into something like that? Uh, yeah, maybe and maybe not. I mean, look, I think uh, you know we, we, a lot of great uh, governors have have been great presidents. Uh, we've elected a lot of governors as president. I would argue, you know, obviously Ronald Reagan. <laughs> we're, since we're in, what, what, what we care about here, yeah, uh, Ronald Reagan was uh, a, a, a a good governor in California that, that people didn't uh, at the time think uh, he he was going to be the nominee, and yet he was our greatest president, in my opinion. But uh, you know, George Bush was a governor. You know, on the flip side, you know, we had uh, you know. Uh, you know, Bill Clinton and Jimmy Carter. So uh, more often than not, uh, governors do become president. And I think one of the reasons is they actually have experience blow, yeah. as Governed. an executive governing. And it's a whole lot different than being a legislator. I've never been one. I'm a lifetime small business guy who, who's managed small businesses. And now I manage a, uh, a, a, you know, a state of 6 million people with a $50 billion budget and 90,000 employees. And I make decisions every day and govern. And I, I would argue that governors actually get things done and it's what American it's why overwhelmingly governors voters trust governors more than senators or congressmen they don't like Washington that's where you know all of you guys uh, you you, you, think tanks and all you smart guys are in Washington focused on Congress but the average voter actually prefers governors well, and and I think that actually also is reflective of conservative principles, right? I mean, federalism, the idea that that it's a republic, and and the states should should for the most part as be Ronald engaged. Reagan said, the federal government didn't create the states; the states created the federal government. Uh, but that doesn't count as your Reagan quote. We're going to get <laughs> no, to that in lightning round. But that was that was a good one. Well done. Yeah, 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 it's uh, impressive, rolling off the tongue there. But let's talk about um, governing and leadership and executive experience. COVID. Yeah. I mean, uh, I I can't think of. Uh, a greater challenge for any uh, executive uh, of any kind, but certainly uh, a chief executive of a state than, than managing the COVID crisis. Um, Maryland, I think on the whole, has done well. A uh, state of emergency, uh, uh, you rolled it back. The restrictions as, as of July, uh, it's not over, but you've, you think we've been through, through the worst of it. Yeah. Um, talk to me about the lessons and experience of getting through COVID and uh, how that's informed kind of you know your your approach to leadership. Well, you know it's a it's a uh, 
it's a crisis that none of us really uh, anticipated being thrown into. Uh, but I think uh, governors, for the most part, really did step up. We were on the front lines and had to make very difficult decisions. We had to try to balance, uh, you know, lives and livelihoods and get it straight and keep people safe. It's our our, our number one uh, priority is keeping our constituents safe. Look, I was leading my state through COVID, but I was also leading the nation's governors. Of course, you're rolling the, the national uh, government. Yeah. So, yeah. So it, 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 look, I, I think, uh, you know, we, we need to do an after action report when it's all over to say, how do we avoid the next, how do we be more prepared for the next crisis like this? But you know, there were some real successes like Operation Warp Speed, and, uh, you know, but there were some stumbles and things we weren't, we just weren't prepared at the state level, at the federal level, uh, our hospital systems, nobody was ready for this, but you know, we did an amazing job. And we, we vaccinated 90, 92.1% uh, of all of our people over 65 and 75.3% of all the adult population over 18. Uh, we've done 7 million vaccines. Uh, we're, we're, our numbers have just about disappeared. We're down below 1%. Hospitalizations, deaths down. We're among the best in the country in every single category. And we've had a tremendous economic recovery. So 13 straight months of job growth. Uh, you know, we're, we're, our economy is humming and we're, we're back to work. So uh, let's talk about the economic recovery. And you said it, it's humming. Um, area that Republican governors have really led on were noticed that, hey, to get people back to work, we have to relook at sure. the unemployment benefits. Yeah. Uh, so Mar you in Maryland and, and other states have essentially said, hey, we got to end yeah. the enhanced federal unemployment benefits. Um, talk to me about your thinking through that. I, I get that in a red state. Yeah. You did it in a blue state. How is it being received? Well, and give me the, 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 the rationale, the argument, why this makes sense. Well, that's that's one of those areas where uh, you're talking about being a conservative and standing up and doing what you think is right in spite, no, in spite of the politics of it, right? So okay. I'm in a very blue state, 70% Democratic, my legislature. Uh, they're going crazy over this, but I, I did what most other states have done, now 26 states. Uh, the benefits really help people in the middle of the worst part of the crisis, but now uh, we're, we're not in that kind of a situation. Unemployment is not our problem. Uh, you know, the lack of a workforce and people not returning to work is our problem. And we, I was talking to, you know, dozens of business people every day and in, in every industry all across the state saying we can't get people back to work and it's killing us. And, you know, we're, the, their, their customers are back. Their business is, it's got tremendous amounts of business, but they don't have the people to, to do the business. So, you know, we just needed to get people back to work. Uh, we, so is a pushback, is a pushback coming from the legislature? Oh, no, 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 or no, no, what about the people, the voters? The voters, I think, are very happy with it. But, I mean, the Baltimore Sun and uh, the Speaker of the House and the Senate President, our Attorney General, all of our congressional delegates are just going crazy. It, we whack the hornet's nest, like, how dare you? And we're heartless. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a huge battle, but, and I knew it would be. But I think it's really important to get our economy back on track. And I agree with uh, the Republican uh, governors on this one, even though I'm in this very blue state. And by the way, uh, John Bell Edwards in Louisiana, we have a Democratic governor that's, that's doing it as well. Let's talk about bipartisanship. Uh, one area that you've led on, not just getting things done in Maryland, but actually across the country uh, from your perch as leading the National Governors Association is infrastructure. Yeah. Uh, right now, as we speak, Washington is very focused on, that is a Congress, and seeing if they can actually get something done in a bipartisan way. Uh, President Biden has uh, at times embraced yeah. some of the bipartisan approach, at times threw cold water in it, now he's silent. Tell us about your involvement in this yeah. and uh, then the prospects for an infrastructure bill. 
That's a great question. So I've been really passionate about this for a long time. For seven years as governor, I've been focused on infrastructure. We're rebuilding all of our roads and bridges and uh, tunnels all across the state. And when I became chair of NGA, I, I, you get to pick a chair's initiative. Mine was on rebuilding America's infrastructure because both parties have always talked about this for decades and never actually gotten anything done. Um, we did a series of summits around the country and around the world with uh, we got all 50 governors to sign on to a, a kind of a bipartisan infrastructure proposal, which we submitted to the president, to uh, Secretary Buttigieg, and to the uh, Senate and the House. Uh, and, uh, you know, I had the opportunity to talk with President Biden in the Oval Office about it, about the, uh, how important I thought it was for us to have a bipartisan deal rather than, I said, just because you can ram something through doesn't mean you should. I think it's bad for the country. It's bad for your administration, even if you start off this way with your first bill, that we ought to try to, and he said he, w he did want to do that. Um, I then called, uh, in the end of April, a summit in Annapolis where I brought in, uh, Republican and Democratic uh, governors, senators, and congressmen, which I think is unprecedented that a governor would convene such a group or that that group actually sat down and talked to each other for two days. You know, Joe Manchin. And, well attended? Uh, very well attended. You know, I, well, he said Joe Manchin. He might be the only person who matters in this conversation. Well, he, 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 he was there. The senator from West but, Virginia. You know, yeah, we, we had a number of, we had plenty of senators on both sides. We had governors and, and, and we have 29 members of the uh, Democrats and 29 Republicans in the Problem Solvers Caucus in the House. We hammered out basically a midpoint, uh, a, a 1.1, 1.2 uh, trillion dollar package that was, you know, took out all of the so-called family infrastructure, focused on real infrastructure, more more than what the Republicans wanted to spend, but much less than the Democrats did. Um, and the problem solvers endorsed it. They agreed to vote as a block of, of 58 votes in the House. So these are Republicans uh, and Democrats dedicated to finding numbers. Right. They said, you know. Then we got, it started with Manchin and a gang of 10, and now it's 22 senators on both sides of the aisle. Uh, so we're, we're kind of dragging both caucuses, uh, the, you know, Pelosi and Schumer on one end and Biden, and, uh, and then Mitch McConnell on the other end and trying to, you know, and McCarthy and trying to find that middle ground. I'm not, I can't guarantee it's going to happen, but we're closer than we've ever been. I, I've you know, been pushing back on President Biden about, you say that you're for the bill, but if you really want to get it done, you've got to push you know, Schumer and Pelosi to get it done. And uh, that's where we are now. I, I co-chair a group called No Labels, which started the Problem Solvers Caucus. Joe Lieberman and I are co-chairs. Uh, and he, he and I both are pushing uh, Biden and uh, and kind of the leaders in both parties to get it done. It's, it's really important for the American people. Last question on infrastructure, and then we'll go to the lightning round. How important is it to you as a governor, as a conservative, that this infrastructure bill be paid for? That is to say, $1.2 trillion, we're getting used to using the T word a lot, trillion, yeah. but that's a lot of money that we have that we have paid for that are legitimate. Yeah, no, I think it's, I think it's very important. I mean, that's obviously, uh, that's big, the big sticking point. So we reach, we reach agreement on the size and scope and what mm -hmm. is and isn't infrastructure. We haven't yet closed the gap on where all the funding comes from. You know, Democrats want to tax uh, corporations and uh, Republicans, uh, you know, don't want to tax anybody. And so uh, uh, there are other solutions. Um, I mean, we, for, in our state, for example, we're, we're doing about, uh, currently under construction, about $20 billion worth of infrastructure. More than half of that is being done with private sector dollars. We're building the largest, uh, you know, P3, public-private partnership, uh, highway project in the world, which is, while we have gridlock inside the, the Beltway, we're fixing the actual Capitol Beltway and with the new American Legion Bridge to connect Virginia and bipartisan accord. We're uh, building the Purple Line to tie into Washington Metro system. We're using private sector investment 
uh, to try to get that done. But we also have, in a traditional sense, doing another nine or ten billion dollars worth, not nine hundred projects going on, fixing everything. We're doing a private sector P three partnership between federal, state, and private sector on building the Howard Street Tunnel in Baltimore. Uh, with CSX on uh, rebuilding another transit tunnel uh, for Amtrak. So that was a big part of the NGA proposal. Some of the summits we did around the world with these private sector, there's trillions of dollars of private sector investment to pay for much of this infrastructure. Uh, Democrats didn't want to talk about that. Republicans did. But that's now part of the the plan. That's a big chunk of where we're coming up with the money. Some of the rest of it was unused uh, stimulus dollars. Right. Well, that's a big one that gets folks There's, you know, uh, probably at least a... you know, I don't know, you know, tons of money laying around in all these states. Sloshing around, yeah. Sloshing yeah, right. around. That right. If we can let the, give the states the flexibility to use that for Towards infrastructure. To, to create jobs and help with their economic recovery. And then, you know, there's bits and pieces here and there, but it's still short of, uh, I don't think you have to have, uh, we're going to have a gas tax on everybody, even though it, 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 you know, we're, it's a declining resource. <laughs> we're, not gonna, we're trying to tell people don't use gas, but that's how we're right. going to fund everything. It doesn't make sense. You can't just tax corporations. So some of it may be user fees, like on the transit systems sure. and or toll revenues. But uh, you know, I think you got to you got to piece it together. Right? Sounds like it may not be dollar for dollar, but you think yeah. it will be a, a chunk of. I, I think. Look, making progress on getting a, a consensus on we have to fix the crumbling infrastructure, and here's what it is, and coming with, up with most of the way to pay for it, which isn't like hurting us with you know tax policy we don't want. It's a great start. I mean, we haven't done anything else for decades. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, let's move to the lightning round. Um, this is the part of the show we ask you your favorite book about President Reagan, your favorite Reagan speech, and your favorite Reagan quote. You can give us all three. If you don't have it, just we'll take yeah, two or just one. So it's very hard. This is the hardest part of the whole thing How's because that? I want to give you like 10 or 12 of each of those. <laughs> but um, I guess favorite book would be Reagan Diaries. Yeah, I mean, it, it just here, it, you know. In his that's life. the second one? That's, that's great. We love that. That's I, a great I, I, answer. A great, great book. Um, uh, my, you know, I love, there's a million quotes and I like some of his humorous ones, his self-effacing humor and his wit. But, but I think the one that was most impactful was freedom is never more than a generation away from extinction. Yeah. Uh, which I think is very true to, uh, you know, today as, as it was then. Uh, and, you know, so many great speeches and many of them I was there for. This one I was not, but it's the one that I think had the biggest impact on the world. And that was in Berlin, you know, tear down this wall. Governor Larry Hogan, thank you so much for being on the show. We hope to have you back. Yeah, thank you very much, Roger.